Hi, y'all. Uh, Luke here with an interview I'm very happy to share. Uh, the following is the audio version of my recent conversation published in Jacobin with the British writer, author, and activist George Monbiot. Now, for some of you, George might need no introduction. Uh, for those of you who don't know his work, he's one of The Guardian's most radically inclined voices, someone who's thought a great deal about the climate crisis and who's also written very perceptively on the subject of neoliberalism. Uh, now, that's a subject we've spoken about a lot on this show, and I want to quote something George wrote back in 2016. He writes, So pervasive has neoliberalism become that we seldom even recognize it as an ideology. We appear to accept the proposition that this utopian millenarian faith describes a neutral force, a kind of biological law like Darwin's theory of evolution. But the philosophy arose as a conscious attempt to reshape human life and shift the locus of power. Neoliberalism sees competition as the defining characteristic of human relations. It redefines citizens as consumers whose democratic choices are best exercised by buying and selling, a process that rewards merit and punishes inefficiency. It maintains that the market delivers benefits that could never be achieved by planning. Now, I suspect those of you who've listened to the show for a while can see in those words why George's work has meant a lot to me. Uh, now, in thinking about neoliberalism, uh, what it's done with our world and the societies in which we live, uh, an urgent issue, at least for me, has always been the breakdown of community. Um, as we've come to live in societies dominated, increasingly dominated by commercial and transactional relationships, by economic relationships, societies that are defined by the commodification of everyday life and all the rest of it, uh, the extent to which community, uh, particularly in a political or a civic sense, uh, the extent to which that uh, even exists anymore, I think is very much open for debate. Now, that's a problem for intrinsic human reasons. I think as human beings, we have very much drawn on communities of one kind or another for thousands of years as sources of belonging, as sources of meaning. It's from within the context of community that we draw, I think, an essential part of our identities. And I think there's an argument to be made that this is especially true of people in the modern age. So people who've lived throughout the past five or six hundred years. In the modern age, I think community has often been conceived of as essential backdrop to human flourishing uh, and to individual flourishing as well, whether we're talking about locally based communities, nationally based communities, class based identities, identities to come out of formative movements for liberation, like the feminist movement or the civil rights movement. And so given, you know, these latter points in particular, I think the breakdown of the very foundations of community in, you know, Western societies, especially but not exclusively over the past, say, 30 or 40 years, I think that that is a problem for intrinsic human reasons, but for other reasons as well. Because without the bonds of solidarity that come out of community, it's really impossible to have collective action of any kind. Um, collective action is what we need if we're going to address the climate crisis, if we're going to address inequality, if we're going to address injustice of any kind, really. And you can see everywhere today how even ostensibly liberatory political projects are often sold to us in kind of consumerist terms, in language that reflects the market. Um, that's very much the influence of neoliberalism and its corrosion of community. 
Anyway, uh, another side to all of this is that many people are finding themselves increasingly atomized, increasingly lonely, uh, mistrustful, and quite possibly for good reason, of traditional institutions, of expertise, of the media, of the government, etc. That's obviously been a huge subtext of the many debates surrounding uh, coronavirus, vaccinations, things like that. And that's largely what you'll hear me speaking with George about here. Uh, he recently wrote a piece in The Guardian, which, among other things, was about the penetration of conspiratorial thinking into some activist circles, into some countercultural milieus and the like. And I was very interested in uh, the particular way he thinks about this. I think too often today, um, and you'll hear me say this during the interview, there's a tendency in mainstream discourse, you've probably heard me complain about this on the show before, uh, a tendency to think about conspiracy theories uh, and things like that in a kind of technologically determinist way that I think is very reductive. So, you know, uh, people's uncles are seeing misinformation memes on Facebook Book. That's why Brexit happened. Uh, that's why Donald Trump was elected, whatever. Uh, I think that's inadequate. I think there's a lot more going on here. Even if social media is undeniably playing a role, it certainly is. Much of this, or some of this anyway, uh, has, I think, to do with the way our present model of economic and political organization has precluded real alternatives, uh, among other things, uh, in a way that has created really big openings for resurgent fascism, neo-fascism, and for the far right. So before we get to the interview, George writes in his recent Guardian piece, I believe this synthesis of left alternative and right-wing cultures has been accelerated by despondency, confusion, and betrayal. After leftish political parties fell into line with corporate power, the right seized the language they had abandoned. Steve Bannon and Dominic Cummings brilliantly repurposed the left-wing themes of resisting elite power and regaining control of our lives. Now there has been an almost perfect language swap. Parties that once belonged on the left talk about security and stability, while those on the right talk of liberation and revolt. So I realize that's a long preamble. Uh, with all of that in mind, we'll turn to the interview now. Please enjoy my conversation with activist and author George Mombayo. Why are we here? Why are we here? Because for decades, nobody else is doing what we are now standing up or sitting down to do. I've been in this business 33 years altogether. At the BBC, then as a freelance, at The Guardian, writing about campaigning against the destruction of our glorious living planet. And every single year, I've heard people say, well, the government hasn't done enough, but it's a good start. Every year has been a good start. Every year there's been a beginning, but never a middle or an end to this story. And why not? Why? When so many people are so desperate to see action, it is because though we claim to live in a democracy, in many respects, it resembles a plutocracy. Where the voice of the people should be heard, the money of the city and the fossil fuel industry and the farming lobby and the fishing industry and the auto manufacturers and the airlines lobby. I guess just to clear the ground a little, uh, the catalyst for your piece was, you know, the perceived sense that 
various countercultural and and even perhaps left milieus are being seduced by conspiracy theories and perhaps in a way that potentially makes them open to embracing reactionary politics so just to to begin i wanted to ask kind of what what prompted that thought and and what exactly this phenomenon is as you as you see it so i've been what 36 years now as an environmental activist um, on the left of the left but also seeing myself as part of the counterculture the sort of hippie culture really um, i might not look like a hippie but <laughs> i'm a hippie in there um and i um have just seen over the past few months um this acceleration of a trend which has been there um for quite a while but is really becoming extremely worrying now of um people uncritically accepting some of the themes, the memes, and the conspiracy theories generated on the right. And I think the pandemic has greatly accelerated that. And the sort of quite rightful suspicion of power on the left and, and on the green left and the hippie alternative countercultural scene seems to have mutated with astonishing and really alarming speed into an acceptance of any um, conspiracy theories based around powerful cabals taking away our freedoms, taking away our rights. Um, and the uncritical nature of that acceptance, the preparedness to subscribe to themes which are racist, anti-Semitic, um, which um, resonates strongly with certain themes in 20th century European history is extremely alarming and needs urgently to be resisted. So, I mean, you, you observed that there is a bit of a, there is precedent for this. You know, the far right has for a long time, I mean, almost as a kind of structural element, it could be argued, you know, it's it's embraced frames and and themes and narratives that are drawn from countercultural or, or alternative sources uh you know we might think you know for example of you know the nazis taking an interest in things like paganism and astrology which you mentioned um i think that history is something that plenty of people are probably not really aware of so maybe we can can you can you discuss that a little further and in discussing it we we shouldn't commit what um Simon Sharma, the historian, calls the obscene syllogism of saying, well, if the Nazis believed in um, ecological education, anyone who believes in ecological education is there for a Nazi. But we should be um, aware that, yeah, there is this very long history. Um, and uh, a big theme in Nazi thought was this idea that we're the strong, pure people people who come out of nature, we, we contrast ourselves to the debauched cosmopolitan people, the urban people. Um, there is a very strong interest in paganism, in astrology, in natural healing. Um, quite a lot of Nazis were anti-vaxxers. Um, there was um, um, homeopathy was, was a strong theme. And, you know, I want to emphasize that I'm not in any way saying that people who have those themes in their lives, that makes them Nazis, because that's evidently not true. Um, but there's been this long-standing far-right attraction to some of these ideas. Then in the 1960s and the 70s, some people on the far-right sought to reinvent themselves by becoming involved in um, certain green anarchism themes, 
um, deep ecology, anarcho-primitivism, and tried to recruit some of those ideas towards um, the notion of ethnic separatism and, and of indigenous autonomy. And you'll see this theme um, increasingly now among white supremacists. We are the indigenous people of this land, whatever it might be, even of North America, you know, it's like, and, and everybody else is an interloper and we have to maintain this land for our pure blood, they're all going to contaminate us and stuff. This is you know, a very long-standing and deep theme. Um, and, um, and, and that was pushed very heavily in the 60s and 70s. And there were some people, I mean, it wasn't in any way generalized, but some people within anarcho-primitivism and deep ecology who succumbed to that theme. And they in turn were picking up something which had been there at the beginning of the 20th century among people like Madison Grant in the United States, who was a white supremacist and conservationist. And the whole idea was, you know, we were going, we're going to preserve the land for the right people and keep the wrong people out. And so this is going to be our heartland, but not their heartland. And so he um, um, was very um, strong in setting up anti-immigration um, platforms and campaigns at the same time as doing a great deal of conservation work. And now, you know, again, you know, this is a history we need to be aware of and, and, and we need to engage with. It's, it's no use pretending it wasn't there. And then in, in Britain, um, the organic movement was um, to a large extent founded by people on the far right, not, not exclusively, but, you know, pe people um, uh, like Rolf Gardner and his circle, uh, there, there, were, there was a very strong theme which resonated with what the Nazis were doing in, in, in Germany of organic agriculture, of this sort of sense of purity, blood and soil. Um, and so, you know, we, we, we're going to build our environmental vision on what is fundamentally a racist and anti-Semitic vision. Now, obviously, we desperately need an environmental vision today. We desperately need alternatives to capitalist destruction, alternatives to um, the current economic and political system. Um, and, but we have to shore up our defences against all those who want to recruit the alternatives for the far right. And unfortunately, we haven't been nearly vigilant enough in establishing those defences. So, um... It sounds like you think that this this sort of phenomenon of of you know alt and countercultural uh, currents being seduced or acclimatized to reactionary narratives um, that though that's happened before you know we're we're kind of in a new in a new paradigm what what we're seeing is new you know you write that today the old boundaries have broken down and the most unlikely people have become susceptible to right wing extremism. Um, Curious, what about the present moment do you think accounts for that uh, specifically? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, there is, I mean, I, I come across literally dreadlocked hippies talking about QAnon and about the conspiracy against Donald Trump. <laughs> like, so, yeah. Hang on a moment. How did this happen? Um, and, and I think it's partly the, the nature of the issues we currently face. 
that they are challenging, you know, and they're, they're challenging to people on the left. They're challenging for anarchists in particular because, you know, we've been asked to do things for the common good, which in other circumstances would be regarded as extreme political coercion. For instance, staying in our own homes to avoid spreading the virus and um, um, accepting these um, distancing measures and mask wearing and, and and the rest of it, which you know, for the people of an anarchist and or libertarian persuasion, you know, this this can seem very oppressive. Now, I happen to think that this is a rare exception to the the idea that you know um, governments should should. Um, um, not interfere to that to that extent because actually you know this was a public health emergency and we needed an emergency response. But I can quite understand how it triggers the suspicion and anger of of people who have long been highly wary, extremely wary of extreme government intrusion into our lives. You know, I'm I'm someone who's been very wary of extreme government intrusion. I mean, I believe that um, the state should play a, a, a very significant role in providing public services, in, in protecting us from um, um, uh, predatory wealth and predatory behaviour. Uh, but um, at the same time, you know, I, there obviously need to be um, clearly defined limits on the extent to which government can intrude into our lives, particularly in, 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 in forms in, when it comes to legal issues and surveillance and restriction of protest and, and other essential liberties. Um, so it's a difficult one, I think, for people of my persuasion to navigate. Um, at the same time, it requires strong intergovernmental agreements, as do um, the climate crisis and the ecological crisis, and you know this is to a large extent an anti-globalist movement. I mean, I I never really saw myself as an anti-globalist. In fact, in two thousand and three, I wrote a book called *The Age of Consent*, looking at how we should recruit globalization to create um, more powerful left political movements. Um, but um, you know, anti-globalization, localism, the homespun economy—all these are major themes, and they're not necessarily wrong ones. As you know, the the, um, the protests against the World Trade Organization, the IMF, the World Bank in, in the 1990s and, and noughties were, I felt, entirely legitimate. These were illegitimate powers being wielded. So, again, it's difficult to navigate because you know, we see genuine crises, genuine emergencies like the climate emergency, which do require intergovernmental agreement. Um, and yet that sort of conflicts with 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 a major current in in thinking in in alternative and left movements um and and but it seems to me that an, another big factor has been the profound discouragement and sense of betrayal um on the part of um formerly left parties which succumbed over the um, sort of from really from the late 70s onwards to neoliberalism became very hard often to distinguish from conservative parties um, who toned down their language, toned down their attempts to restrain economic power um, and and toned down their redistributive um, and justice agendas. Um, and what we've seen um, as to quite a dramatic extent, has been a language swap on the part of the formerly left and 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 and, and new right wing parties. So, 
left-wing parties now uh, um, talk about security and stability. Uh, just just um, uh, yesterday, Keir Starmer, the, the leader of the Labour Party, published this 14,000-word uh, essay called The Road Ahead. And there were literally phrases. People found the exact same phrases in the 2015 Conservative Manifesto. It was like it just lifted chunks out of that. And, and, and these were all these highly conservative framings about, you know, how I'm going to offer you stability, I'm going to offer you security, hardworking families, you know, as opposed to those scroungers, you know, who we don't like. And it was all sort of this highly, highly, sorry, highly conservative um, approach. And, and it's like he borrowed the language of, of the conservatives. And then you have the radical right, people like Steve Bannon and Dominic Cummings, who have stolen the language of the left. And they talk about liberty and revolution. And, and this, I think a lot of people find it highly confusing. You know, if you don't follow politics closely and you don't keep tabs on who everyone is, you hear words like liberty and revolution. And you think, oh, those must be our guys. That, these are our friends, because that's what I believe in. I believe in liberty and revolution. So these must be our friends. And, you know, it's a time where we just have to be super vigilant. Who's saying this? Why are they saying it? Who's backing them? And we haven't been vigilant enough. Yeah, I mean, in this election that just concluded in Canada, you had both the the centrist party and the Social Democratic Party, the NDP, you know, both making the case for, you know, uh, continued COVID measures, you know, vaccine passports and things like that. And the the far right party, which uh, which is a new party and ran almost exclusively uh, against kind of lockdowns and vaccine passports, their leader, uh, you know, uh, they he, they tripled their vote. They didn't win a seat, but their leader on election night on Monday, uh, his kind of call to arms was, we're not just a party, we're a movement. This is an ideological revolution. And so very much replicates the dynamic you're talking about. You can also think about, I mean, it, that dynamic, uh, when I read that line in your piece, I thought immediately of the 2016 U.S. presidential election where the Democratic candidate was... Uh, quite, quite brazenly sort of boasting, like, look at all this establishment support I have. Don't you just love the security apparatus and the CIA and, and, and look at all these, you know, celebrities and corporate overlords who back me. And then Donald Trump was talking all about, you know, uh, how transgressive he was and, uh, and all that kind of thing. Um, very much something you see everywhere. Um, so something I, I really admired about the piece was the way that I think you avoided the the kind of technological and particularly social media determinism that is is really the the norm today when it comes to how people account for the spread of things like conspiracy theories and uh, you know anti science beliefs, reactionary ideas. Um, you know, you see a lot of you know endless kind of uh, discussions of how you know. Uh, memes helped Donald Trump win in in 2016 and things like that. But you know, for you, th this is much more about social atomization. It's about the breakdown of community um, and kind of the absence of a common narrative. Um, so this had me thinking about the the you know uh, the idea the ideas uh, associated with what you call the politics of belonging or the the restoration story. And sort of by way of, of discussing or sketching out an antidote to some of the things we've been discussing, I wondered if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So 
I mean, I, I, I think you can almost boil it down to two forms of belonging. There's, 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 there's creating bonding communities, which are basically getting together with people just like yourself against the other, people with a similar um, uh, racial class background against other people. And then there's a bridging community where you build bonds, build links with people outside your, your, your background, out, outside your circle. And we urgently need to create bridging communities because if we don't, other people will fill that vacuum by creating bonding communities. And community is essential to human identity. You know, we, we can't survive without a sense that we belong, belong to something. And, and you could see fascism as an extreme expression of the need for belonging. I mean, it is this sort of kind of hyper belonging, a hyper community where people um, wear the same clothes, have the same haircuts, chant the same slogans, march to the same music, if you can call it music, fly the same flags. It's this sort of ultra homogenized community where there's this really sort of, sort of paranoid need for an extreme form of belonging, um, for the sort of reassurance you get from being part of something which looks just like you and sounds just like you. Um, and um, and so to to try to create a politics which has no sense of belonging just opens yourself up to um, being pushed aside by people who are just desperately looking for that belonging and finding it elsewhere. And so I believe that we we need to create um, communities based on equity and justice, based on the common use of common resources, based on sharing. Uh, based on public space, literal physical public space and public assets, uh, ideally owned and run by communities, um, which are um, inclusive and deliberately and specifically pull in um, um, people from all different walks of life. And there are ways, there's almost a science of doing this. There was a, a, a 400 page report um, um, commissioned by, surprisingly, by a London Borough Council over here. Um, which sort of looked all around the world at you know, how you create bridging community. And it's like the, the, there's almost a sort of formula you, you, you can apply and it can be done very effectively. And I believe that progressive political renewal comes out of that. It doesn't come from the top down. And I would love to see it accompanied by the sort of community politics, which I think digitization. Uh, better communication enables to a far greater extent than ever before, which is deliberative participatory politics, like the participatory budgeting that prevailed in Porto Alegre for 15 years, like the Better Reykjavik program, the Decide Madrid program, where you just have far more day-to-day -day control over democratic decision-making than we are offered in most of our nations. And you know, in countries like yours, in countries like mine, there's an election every four or five years where we're asked to put across on a piece of paper. Um, we'll have, I mean, in our last election, 35% of people who voted, voted Conservative, but, you know, Conservatives won. And they then had a mandate to do whatever they want for the next five years. And um, whether it was in their platform or whether it was not, not that anybody ever read the platform, you know, but... but Every single thing that's in there, they said we have a mandate for, and anything else that we want to do, we have a mandate for that as well, because we're the government. And if you don't like it, well, uh, you could express your opinion in five years' time. Now, 
That is a system called presumed consent. Our consent to everything they do for the next five years is presumed. And so they act on our behalf on the basis that we, the nation, have presumed, are presumed cons to consent to this thing that they do because they are the government and they got the majority at the last election. Now, we don't accept the principle of presumed consent in sex. So why should we accept it in politics? Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's, an out, it's an obscene and outrageous idea that, that we have, uh, that our consent can be assumed for everything that they want to do during that time. Um, however outrageous those policies might be. And we have the tools to allow a much more fine-grained popular control, democratic control of politics that, 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 than we've been allowed. And yet politics still is in the era of the horse-drawn carriage and the quill pen. Right. So, I mean, you, you've, you've been very, that's all very kind of... Um practical and and I want to kind of just as a final as a final question get a little bit abstract and kind of I don't know ethereal here but you know when you talked about uh when when you've talked in the past about a restoration story you've kind of situated it as perhaps you know the 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 next and kind of the 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 a new constructive phase in our kind of political imaginary after neoliberalism and after the things that preceded neoliberalism the uh you know common narratives around keynesian social democracy things like that so uh i kind of wanted to probe that a little bit more just uh, just in conclusion here the the restoration story what what exactly does the phrase mean to you and how would you situate it in relation to these other kind of grand narratives the restoration story is about narrative framing. In itself, it's not a good thing or a bad thing. It's just a highly effective vehicle for um, promoting a particular politics. And you know, there's a lot of work showing that, you know, without coherent stories, you don't get anywhere in politics. You know, you don't, if, if you don't have a story to tell, which tells us who we are, how we got here, what's gone wrong and where we need to go, then you're not going to get anywhere in politics or in religion for that matter. Um, and, and all the successful political movements have been very clear about their narrative. But what I find really fascinating is that across both politics and religion, there's a particular narrative structure which seems to work. Um, and, you know, there's been a lot of arguments. Are there three basic plots or five basic plots or seven or nine? It's always an odd number for some reason. Um, but there's this one basic plot, which I call the restoration narrative, or the restoration story, um, which seems to work again and again in, poli in politics, regardless of whether you're left, right or centre. This is the structure that you use, um, which seems to work, which is that uh, the world has been thrown into disorder by powerful and nefarious forces working against the interests of humanity. But the hero or heroes confronts these powerful and nefarious forces over, uh, against the odds, overthrows them and restores harmony to the land. And this is a very familiar story. It's a Bible story, the Harry Potter story. It's the Lord of the Rings story. You know, we hear it again and again, but it's also yeah, it's a story that Marx told. It's a story that Keynes told. It's a story that Hitler told. It's a story that every successful political movement tells about restoration. Now, it can be used in a very bad way, and it can be used in a very good way. 
Um, it was used by the neoliberals to uh, to, to great effect. Um, um, you know, um, Hayek and Friedman and the others. Um, uh, they basically say, you know, we uh, the, the the powerful and nefarious forces of the state. Um, and we, the heroes, are the entrepreneurs who are going to overthrow the state and restore harmony to the land. And, and we desperately need a new restoration story. It's no good going back to Keynes's very powerful restoration story because conditions have changed and you can't go back in politics anyway, unless you're a fascist. Fascists can keep going back. I don't know why, what it is about fascism, which allows the model to be endlessly repeated. But on the left, you can't go back or even in you know, the sort of Keynesian social democracy, you can't go back, partly because um, you know, the financial sector worked out how to defeat Keynesianism. It worked out how to bypass capital controls and um, uh, the other essential elements, foreign exchange controls as well, um, that Keynes put in place. So, you know, they've already got the tools to defeat the system. You know, why, why bring, bring that system back? It's not going to work. And, and I see a restoration narrative built around the politics of belonging uh, as being a potential way forward. And I don't say it's the only potential story. Maybe there are better ones, but it, it's the best I've got at the moment. And, and it's basically about, you know, the, the, the world has been thrown into disorder by the powerful nefarious forces of neoliberalism, um, um, working against the interests of humanity, um, telling us that our role in life is to fight like stray dogs over a dustbin. There's no higher purpose in life than that. Um, but we, the heroes of the story, the working class, middle class people of, of the land, um, um, will rise up against these powerful and nefarious forces um, and start rebuilding these communities, these bridging communities, and start rebuilding, building a politics of belonging. Um, and so, and from the bottom up, from our own neighbourhoods, our own communities, using the tools of participatory democracy, using the commons, um, um, in, in, in investing politically in our own communities, um, investing economically and socially in our own communities, we will rebuild um, a, 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 um, um, a, a, a situation which allows us to restore harmony to the land. Um, and, and that's you know, my best stab at a restoration story for the 21st century.